You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Doug Hudson. Dr. Hudson is board certified by the American Board of Neurology, the American Board of Sleep Medicine, and the American Society of Neurorehabilitation. Welcome. Thank you, Leslie. Well, Doug, I have heard you talk about the eight-hour consultation. What does that mean? It means that uh, during the night when one goes for what we call a polysomnogram or a sleep study, there's usually about eight hours of recording of many parameters of one's vital function. And the following day, the physician who interprets this information Uh, is literally put in charge of deciding what happened during eight hours of time. So how has this polysomnogram, this sleep study, changed over the years? There was a time back in the 40s and 50s or even earlier when uh, everything was paper-driven and to do an all-night sleep study or an all-night electroencephalogram or something of that nature would require almost a room full of paper. And so they made the recordings rather short And an interesting side note is that, for example, uh, REM sleep, or rapid eye movement sleep, was not even discovered until the early 1950s, I believe 1953 to be exact, when they left the recording on a little longer than usual. And, of course, REM sleep usually doesn't begin until an hour and a half after we go to sleep. And all of a sudden, they discovered rapid eye movement sleep. So now we have all-night recordings that are compacted into disks and stored into uh, computers, which uh, allow us to then take this information the following day and put it all together and come up with a diagnosis uh, based on that information. Most of us have never been inside of a sleep lab. Can you please describe what patients can expect when they go? Well, if they've been given the proper information in advance, they should be reassured that they're going into a very comfortable atmosphere, almost like to refer to it as like a bed and breakfast. They're usually bedroom-like uh, settings. The machinery is hidden in another room, and the technicians are well-trained to uh, reassure the patients and place the electrodes on the patient's head and leg and chest and places like that. Then they usually fall asleep. They're allowed to take their regular medications and, and so forth. So it's uh, usually a very comfortable setting where anxiety only on occasion inhibits their the nighttime activities and usual sleep activities. So uh, can patients take sleeping medicine before a sleep study? Yes, they can. In fact, one thing we don't like to do is to watch somebody not sleep all night. So we want to make sure they take, at least personally, I always have them take the medicines that they've been taking at home. There are some labs who tell people not to take them, but those are the ones where people come and have rebound insomnia and don't sleep all night. But we want to see what they're doing on the medicines that they're taking. And there are medicines available now that do not significantly affect sleep architecture, so we don't want them to take something brand new like a Valium drug that might suppress certain stages of sleep or something like that. Which ones generally do you recommend? Well, the ones that are closer to more natural sleep, such as Ambien and Lunesta and Roserum and things like that, especially if they've been tested before to work in the patient. We sometimes have them try them out at home before they go. Most people don't need medication that go to the sleep lab because many of them have disorders which cause daytime sleepiness and they have no difficulty falling asleep if they've been reassured about the comforts of the lab. Can a patient just get a sleep study or do they have to have a referral? 
Well, generally they require a referral from a physician or a health care provider, such as a physician's assistant or nurse practitioner. There are labs, however, that I've been told that will advertise and just take people off the street, but they still have to be, be approved by some medical person, even though they're sight unseen, but that's not the usual way. It's usually referred by a medical person. So once you do go ahead with the sleep study, what kind of information do you obtain? It's sometimes directed by the person that orders it. So when you ask about who would order a sleep study, if it's a medical person, you would expect that person to be able to at least have an understanding of the interpretation by either another doctor or interpret the record themselves and then address the sleep issue that had been diagnosed with the sleep study or through the history physical. And uh, on occasion, there are relationships that doctors have with other doctors that say, if you order the sleep study, then make sure you see the patient afterwards in order to expedite the time. But the information that we look for is a multitude of tests, which I can list for you, and, uh, and it's not even complete, and it's continuing to improve. We mainly look at uh, what we call sleep architecture, and that's how much time is spent in a various stage of sleep and, and how many arousals there are throughout the night, how long it takes to fall asleep, how long it takes to go into the first dream cycle, which is very important in, in some stages, like depression. Patients often go into REM sleep faster. People who've been sleep deprived go into REM sleep faster. Uh, narcoleptic patients go into REM sleep faster. So we look at those latencies. We want to know how much time they spend in various stages of sleep, and that's been well uh, determined by studies throughout the years, and it's amazing how standard it is. Then we look at the um, temporal relationships of these sleep stages, which ones come first and second and third and so forth. We look at how many times people shift from stage to stage. Again, how many awakenings, how many arousals from all causes. When a patient has an arousal of the brain, which is measured on the electroencephalogram, which is a, one of the parameters measured, we always look around and see, well, what caused this? Was it snoring? Was it apnea? Was it leg movements? Was it some cardiac event? Or some unexplained arousal, which we sometimes can attribute to GERD or acid reflux or, or autonomic arousals. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Austin, Texas sleep medicine specialist, Dr. Doug Hudson. What becomes of all of this data that you've recorded? Well, all the data, including the electroencephalogram and other things such as the oxygen saturations and sometimes measuring carbon dioxide levels and deciding if they have sleep apnea, uh, obstructive type, or central type. Those are all pieces of information that go into the raw data bank, which are then taken by a person who knows what they are doing, supposedly, and comes up with an interpretation and recommendations for treatment. And the problem that I have, unfortunately, is that, that while the National Sleep Foundation and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine have done a great job of educating the public as well as medical personnel who, as you know, are not very well trained in sleep, uh, but they don't understand the basic mechanism or the pathway for making the diagnosis and treatment of sleep disorders. In my experience, frankly, there seems to be some fly-by-night sort of operations with docs whose qualifications may not be what we might like. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you're exactly right, and part of it is our own fault. We've sort of created a monster, as it were, by now educating everyone, or at least attempting to, 
how serious sleep disorders are and how much they contribute to many, many medical diseases, or at least to aggravate them. And all of a sudden, we're having all of these sleep labs pop up, and anybody can open a sleep lab if they just buy some equipment and find any medical person with a degree to sign off on the technician report. And while it's fortunately, it's all computer-driven, and a lot of times the information is correct, but that leaves a large number of incorrect or inadequate reports that are generated and people are not treated. Sleep apnea has been such a popular diagnosis. It's almost the bread and butter of sleep disorders, but there are so many more things to find out during a sleep study than just whether or not a patient has apnea. There is also a thrust to do home sleep studies, and while some of those may work out in some patients, especially with selected individuals, the attended study is still the gold standard. There are too many things that need to be done during a night as far as nurturing the patient and helping them that just can't be done with a non-attended study. So it's a, I think it's very unethical just to take a piece of information that a technician generates and hand it to somebody else to sign off on. It would be like in psychiatry if someone took a little exam and said they were, it came up, said they were depressed and had some schizophrenic tendencies and then have some person not trained to sign off and say the person is schizophrenic and depressed, then that wouldn't be right. Right. So what training is necessary to interpret a sleep study? Just on-site training. Uh, people, there were no schools. There are several schools now that are training people. And, of course, you study for your boards. And the new board setup is with the internal medicine and ENT and psychiatry and neurology and pulmonology, and these persons, once they're boarded in one of those, can then sit for the boards and sleep medicine. And uh, But that, to pass those boards, there's a lot of education. It takes uh, you know, several, maybe not years, but at least a year or more of training, of either a fellowship or reading a lot of studies under supervision. Uh, but like a lot of other specialties, some, some are grandfathered because of just on-site experience. But to take a five-day school or a weekend school or a two-week school and then come back and start doing interpretations, that's not right. I've heard about split-night studies. What does that mean? To make a little history of the sleep study itself, back when REM sleep was discovered or, and then later when sleep apnea was uncovered, as it were, around the early 1980s, Prior to that time, most of the sleep studies were sort of done for research purposes and all, and then all of a sudden it became a bedside diagnosis uh, or a bedside use of the polysomnogram. And they would then bring the patient in the lab to study them for whatever the problem would be. And they would, these labs were very military-like. They just uh, had cabinets in the room. They weren't very conducive to sleep. So they would spend one night just trying to get used to the, to the lab and the next night making a diagnosis and the third night confirming it. So everybody got a three-night study. Well, that was expensive, and so then uh, they got to where they were doing two-night studies, and then they realized in sleep apnea that a lot of these people were so bad off they could make a diagnosis in, in two or three hours, and then they would put the CPAP on and then start pushing the pressures of this CPAP or the continuous positive airway pressure equipment up until they reached uh, some success. Unfortunately, then the insurance companies picked up on that, and of course they like that. It's a one-night study, and it does work. For some people in selected states that have severe sleep apnea, but unfortunately there are too many people out there with mild apnea and moderate apnea that don't meet the so-called criteria. But a lot of people get split night studies and the titration is incomplete and they leave the lab not feeling refreshed and their compliance rate's very low 
So I personally never order a split knot study, although it's still very commonly done. Thank you. I, I wasn't clear on that. One of the things that I'm always puzzled by is when I get a sleep study back, usually for me I send patients because I suspect apnea, and the study comes back normal. Is that the end of the story? Well, by no means, and that's almost the thrust of my entire uh, concern here with the so-called eight-hour consultation is that you have all of this data that you subjected the patient to an entire night in the lab. If all you really want to know is if they have sleep apnea or not, I mean, you can go train a high school student or some technician just to do a home study, and they'll tell you if you have sleep apnea or not. Well, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Doug Hudson. We have been discussing the eight-hour consultation. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.